Hello everyone. Last week on the 1st of October, I was invited to deliver the keynote lecture at the Progress Singapore Party's fundraising dinner. In it, I tried to explain three fundamental ideologies which underpin how the PAP governs Singapore and why it is so important for all opposition parties to decide where they stand in relation to these ideologies and then come up with their own coherent platform. I hope you enjoyed this lecture. Please note that the opinions expressed in this speech are my personal views and are not endorsed by the Progress Singapore Party. As always, if you enjoy what we're doing here at New Narrative, please do join as a member at newnarrative.com join or you can donate at newnarrative.com donate. Thank you very much and enjoy the lecture. Thank you for inviting me here this evening. Uh, it's a real privilege to come address all of you. Um, and in particular, you know, thanks, thank you to the organizers. Um, I, I don't think I've met all of you. Thank you to the volunteers. Thank you, Dr. Tan, for having me. Uh, it's, um, I'm, I'm just so delighted uh, to be here. Uh, so I think this is being recorded. So for those of you watching on the recording, my name is PJ Thumb. Uh, I'm wearing a blue batik shirt and standing on a stage. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. So I want to start tonight actually by building on what Manwai said. Uh, and the second question in particular, which is, what does the PSP stand for, right? What is the PSP's vision for Singapore? What is your vision of Singaporean identity? So if I were to walk out on the street right now and I were to ask one of the voters in West Coast, right? What does the PSP stand for? What is uh, their vision for Singapore, for, for Singapore identity? What do you think they would say? I, I, I honestly don't know, but I think this is one of the most important questions that all of you actually have to uh, really seriously think about and address, right? And heck, even if I were to ask your average party member, one of you, the volunteers right now, what actually are the party values? What is your vision for Singapore and Singapore's identity? What do you think they would say? Would they all give the same answer? Would they all be on the same page? I'm, I'm seeing shaking heads. Okay, so you guys are already aware that this is a question that needs to be addressed. And this is actually what I wanted to address this evening when thinking back on GE 2020 and the future of Singapore. So that's why I titled this talk, The Past and Future of Singaporean, uh, Singapore Democracy. Now, you're a new party and familiarity with DOC gave you a lot of uh, voter recognition at the last election. But I think answering these questions are actually your party's biggest challenges, um, and especially for creating a sustainable party, a party that can live on um, and you know, beyond the, the founder. Because, I mean, let's face it, Dr. Tan really should be sitting back, relaxing with a glass of whiskey in his hand right now, putting his feet up, you know, not engaging in frontline politics, right? No. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is typical Singapore. Senior citizens still have to work for the good of the country. <laughs> I, I heard Tan Chuan Jin say it's just a form of exercise for him. But I mean, Dr. Tan's unstoppable. Even my 15-year-old son, no idea about politics, knows who he is. I told him coming here today, he, his eyes lit up. He was like, wow, hype beast, hype beast. Okay. But seriously, what does the PSP stand for, right? 
And to understand this, I actually want to frame this in terms of some very broad historical forces. So I hope you don't mind if I talk a bit about the past 100 years and where we are, historically speaking, right now. <laughs> and, um, I hope this doesn't bore you, but you know, you invite a historian, this is what you're going to get, <laughs> history. Now, the great force of the 20th century, right, into today is actually nationalism. It's the defining force of the 20th century. Not capitalism, socialism, communism, it's nationalism which changed the world more than any of those other ideologies. And in particular, the concept of the nation state. Right? The concept of the nation state arises out of the wreckage of these great world, uh, land empires um, and their breakup in World War I. Right? Germany, Austria-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire, they broke up and suddenly, uh, all these uh, groups of people had to govern themselves. And the nation-state idea was um, very powerfully liberating by articulating this very basic idea. If people should govern themselves, well, how do we group people? If everyone has a nationality, if they belong to a nation, and if nations should be sovereign and self-governing, then it makes sense. Every nation should have its own state, hence the nation-state. And this is how we organize ourselves today, right? Very rapidly, in human history, between the fall of the Roman Republic and the end of World War I, the default idea of political organization was the empire. Within a few decades, today we accept the world is one of nation states. That's how powerful this idea became. The problem is that it's impossible for every nation to map neatly onto every state and vice versa. And over time, autocrats have realized that monopolizing control of the definition of the state, right, of the definition of the nation, sorry, allows them to control the state by targeting their enemies, by saying that their enemies are not of the nation. And from there, it's a short step to saying, okay, if they're not of the nation, they're against the nation. And if they're against the nation, they're against the people and they must be destroyed. And so that then justifies dealing with their opponents, their enemies, with extreme prejudice. Real or perceived enemies, they must be destroyed because they're anti-national. So what you see is the nation-state ideal powers this great breakup of empires. It liberates people throughout the 20th century, and you've got all these new colonies. But at the same time, we also get the horrors of things like genocide, because the definition of national identity is not settled within a nation-state. Who belongs to the nation? Who does not? So if you think about it, the Rohingya, the Tibetans, the Uyghurs, the Papuans, right, in West Papua, what nation do they belong to? What state do they belong to? And what happens if their self-definition of their own identity is different from their state government's definition of their identity. What happens if our definition of our identity is different from our government's? In Singapore, we see people who disagree with the government being tarred as anti-national, as traitors, on the most spurious grounds, right? Including myself, some of the other people in this room, right? And that is how you deal with how autocrats have learned to deal with, with uh, opponents. So the point I want to make, right, is that the fundamental contest in this world today, it's not about policies. It's not about the manifestations of the deep-seated issues that we see, climate change, inequality. The fundamental contest 
is actually about identity. This is the consequence of over a century of the nation-state ideal and the contestation of who belongs to the nation. And this is the central contradiction of the world we live in today. And this is what you as a political party are having to grapple with, right? We organize ourselves politically on the basis of the nation-state, which is predicated on the nation, which is entirely imaginary and constructed. And that gives immense power to the party, to the people, to the government, which can control national identity. The people who can control that identity can control the state. And that's why the fundamental contest, I believe, of this modern world right now is not about policies, it's about identity. Now, studies have also shown that people don't vote purely on rational self-interest, right? They can't. It's just, there's just too many conflicting details. The world is a very complicated place, and there are just too many things going on. And people don't vote on the basis of who the best candidate is. It's very often they vote for a party, not a candidate. And they, often people don't even vote on the basis of you know, issues or even a single issue. All these things do matter, but when you walk into a polling station, you're, you only have a limited set of choices in front of you, and no one agrees with everything a party says or puts out or every policy that they, they propose. So what studies have shown is that voters vote to affirm their identity. They make choices based on their identity, who they want to be, who they are. Right? Voters vote as much to affirm their own identity as to make a choice about party and policy. Voting has become really tribal. Voters vote and they feel entirely justified in voting on the basis of a very narrow identity that, identify with, that they identify with. And this then brings into power leaders who can use that. And usually it's by using fear of the other, exclusionary nationalism to win power. So leaders like Trump, like Orban, Right? or even like Mahathir Muhyiddin. They're natural products of a historical trajectory that started over a century ago. They're not aberrations or exceptions, even though, personally, we want them to be. They stoke fears of people who do not fit in with this national identity, especially minorities and migrants. They attach values which support their position as part of the national identity and attack the values which don't support their position as being anti-national. So ironically, nationalism, which was such a liberating force in the first half of the last century, is now a primary justification for exclusion and oppression within the nation states, and it's led the world to become even more divided. And the, the toxicity of nationalist rhetoric and the politics of fear means that there's a wide range of issues that end up being tied to nationalism, even though it might not necessarily be related to nationalism. So migrants, right? The dilution of one's culture, moral decay, the loss of economic livelihood, inequality, poverty, and so on. If you think about the exploitation of workers, uh, for example, which uh, you know, I think Hazel spoke about in Parliament, um, about immigration, about uh, inequality, about unemployment, right? The exploit exploitation of workers is an economic issue which is tied fundamentally to the lack of leverage by workers against capital. So rationally, workers should be angry at capitalists or at governments for exploiting them, right? By destroying unions, by passing laws and regulations which reduce their power, eroding workers' rights, bringing in cheap labor. But they're not. 
workers end up being angry at migrants, migrant workers, for coming in and taking their jobs. They, they are against open borders, even though it's clear, studies have shown that open borders, among other things, actually increase the leverage of workers to demand higher wages by giving them mobility to challenge the mobility of capital. And this shows us how nationalism can trump class. Nationalism can trump rational self-interest. It can overpower right, rational economic self-interest, and consequently, politicians find it easier to mobilize voters on the basis of nationalism and fear rather than rational arguments. If you look at the last election, right, G2020, all of you, every party, PAP included, walked this fine line between xenophobia and workers' rights. And why? Why do you think all of you were unable to overcome this fundamentally nationalist framing of what actually is an economic issue? Because we're trapped. This is the power of nationalism, this paradigm that shapes our lives. We're all trapped, particularly right now, here, within the PAP's conception of the nation, and this is how the PAP wins. Because as long as they monopolize what it means to be Singaporean, they make themselves the natural party of power. They control the definition of what it means to be Singaporean, and therefore having the PAP in power is part of that definition. And what is their definition of our national identity? And here, I'm going to talk about three core ideologies, three core tenets of that identity, which I think you need to think about where you stand in relation to. Right? Three ideological tenets which they've fiercely defended since the 1990s, which they've consistently sought to define as core to the Singaporean identity. And the three are, first, that individuals do not possess human or social rights which they can assert against the government. Second, that political accountability derives from, the, from virtue, from this ineffa ineffable moral virtue of political leaders, rather than, say, liberal and democratic institutions, and that this virtue can be de determined through state-sponsored meritocracy. And third, that rational problem-solving should be favoured over political competition and contestation. So, perhaps it goes without saying, but these are not what Singaporeans believe to be their national identity in 1963 or 73, or even 83. Right? They're the product of a sustained propaganda campaign that dates from the mid-80s and has been enhanced through the years through narratives like the Singapore story. Right? Doc, we were just talking about the Singapore story and how powerful it is as a propaganda tool. And also policies and regulations that have reshaped our society. Certainly, the PAP itself in the 50s and 60s is on the record as believing in things like political contestation, competitive politics, citizenship rights, human rights, labour rights, democratic institutions, transparency, accountability, a comprehensive social welfare system. All of that is in the historical record. Right? But today, they have successfully tied these three core ideas to our national identity through things like Asian values, right? the Asian values campaign. And on the other hand, demonizing comp uh, competing ideologies as being Western values, Western ideologies, Western politics. They demonize the foreign as anti-national, but they selectively do so in a way which defends their conception of the nation. It's, it's very hypocritical. So let me take these three in turn. Right? First, that individuals do not possess human or social political rights which they can assert against the government. So what that means is, fundamentally, everything the state gives you is a privilege, not a right. And at its most insidious, walking down the street freely is a privilege, 
not a right. Under the Public Order Act, walking down the street without a permit is illegal, just ask Silan Palik, right? But they have the right under the Constitution and under the way they have framed um, our uh, the national identity as having the right to withdraw that right, the right to just walk down peacefully down the street holding a mirror, they can withdraw that at any time. This, the government says, is Asian, Asian values. You know, Lee Sin Long has said, for example, something like, in the West, you protect individuals from society. In Asia, we protect society from individuals. This, of course, is nonsense. You know, plenty of Asian countries protect individual rights, either through customary basis or legal basis, uh, and protect them against the encroachment of the state, right? Indonesia, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Papua New Guinea, Timor-Leste, right? Small countries, big countries. You know, they, they all do that. And of course, as I mentioned before, when the PAP was in opposition, it really believed in those individual rights. Once it took power, suddenly it embraced the ideology of the colonial oppressor. oppressor. But you see, this then gives the PAP space to then articulate all sorts of arbitrary and contradictory positions. For example, it says, society is fragile. And we, the government intervenes in people's lives to a great degree for harmony, long-term planning for the good of society. That's the Asian way they, society, uh, you know, they say. At the same time, they say, family or individual responsibility for welfare is the Asian way and preferable to collective responsibility or Western-style welfare states. No crutch mentality. Well, which one is it, right? This is an outright contradiction. If the government is going to take away our choices and impose decisions on us, then they make, must take responsibility for what happens to us then. If it wants us to take responsibility for our lives, then it must give us genuine choice to make decisions for ourselves. Instead, they want all of the control without any of the responsibility. This is a contradiction, but if you understand that the PAP's policies are predicated not on these ideas, but on a lack of individual social political rights, then it all makes sense. And this then affects all your policy proposals. How you decide, right, what your position on this is affects your policy proposals. In the recent GE, we talked a lot about the tackling the cost of living inequality. But I think all the parties implicitly accepted the right of the government to intervene and determine, perhaps entirely, the appropriate level of welfare that Singaporeans are permitted. Well, is a citizen's right to access welfare, is it a right or a privilege? Right, from the PAP perspective, it's a privilege. From your perspective, is it a right or a privilege? In many developed countries, a citizen's right to welfare cannot be removed through arbitrary government power, right? You need to actually go through a constitutional process before you can remove that welfare because it is a right. So, because it's not the case in Singapore, hence you have the fear of government. Taman can say our social welfare is a trampoline, right? You hit the uh, trampoline, you bounce back up. But what he doesn't say is that the reason people are compliant is because the government can pull that trampoline away at any time. If you're hitting downwards, if you're hitting upwards, up to them, if they don't like you, they can pull it away just because they don't like what the citizen you know, says or does. So the second ideology is that political accountability derives from the moral virtue of political leaders rather than liberal and democratic institutions, and that this virtue can be determined through state-sponsored meritocracy. Now, in the recent GE, 
Opposition parties campaign heavily on the need for checks and balances, right? A critical mass of opposition politicians to increase accountability. And then more broadly, there were a lot of calls for more accountability and transparency, not just from the government and the PAP, but all the state institutions. How did the PAP defend itself against this? Through an ideology which Gary Rodan has called the PAP's moral ideology of accountability. So when we normally talk about accountability, we're talking about something like democratic or legal, constitutional forms of accountability. Democratic accountability is something like when officials at all levels face uh, the discipline of the ballot box, the will of the people, in some form, directly, indirectly, uh, whether through elections or otherwise, right? And this preserves the sovereignty of the people. Uh, a legal or constitutional um, idea of accountability is something like um, contracts, right? The law, constitutions, and these protect individual freedoms through contractual arrangements, whether it's legal, whether it's constitutional, whether it's written as a contract, and these restrain the ability of the government and state agencies to violate personal freedoms. But for the PAP's moral ideology, political authority is something ineffable. It's grounded in metaphysical, charismatic, or, and or traditional sources that are beyond objective judgment. So political leaders in this scenario, in their conception, are these moral guardians of society. And in Singapore, moral virtue, i.e. Your, your personal integrity, combines with meritocracy, your talent, to create an elite. So how then do we evaluate the conduct of people with power? The main question the PAP asks is, well, you know, they ask, right, when they're trying to evaluate is, well, are they a good person? And how do they decide that? Well, they don't tell you. The PAP gets to decide who is a good person, right? Based, because they conform to some sort of arbitrary code of behavior, they perform in a certain way, right? The PAP gets to decide based on that performance who has moral virtue and personal integrity. The PAP judges, sets up and judges a whole system of moral accountability and meritocracy. So when a PAP minister screws up, they can brush it aside and say, oh, I know that man, he's a good person. It is an honest mistake. He doesn't need to resign. And even spin it around and say, if someone doesn't need to resign, then we should have the moral courage to stand up for him rather than insist they resign. I don't need to go through the number of times they have done this now in the past 10, 20 years, right? Mas Salamat, MRT, problems, transport, immigration, racist language from MPs, etc., etc. Because the PAP's judgment of their morality is more important than the law's judgment or the people's judgment. Conversely, a leader's poor judgment, a poor performance, can be taken to be fundamentally the result of personal failings, a lack of morality, rather than, say, institutions failing, right? The law failing, the democratic will of the people not being adhered to. So they can just change the person without changing the system. Because it's not about the system. This is the person who's you know, morally, uh, they made a mistake, so we'll just move them. And then it's not the system's fault, and then they can quietly give that person a second chance. Uh, Ivan Lim, right? Certain paper generals who have done very poorly. Uh, the GM of Ang Mo Kyo Town Council, I don't know what's happened to him, but you know, the, it's like he just disappears uh, in the news after the judgment. 
And this undermines the rule of law, right? Because it implicitly sends a message that it is more important to have moral leaders than rule of law. But who decides who is a moral leader, a good leader? The PAP. What will save Singapore is a system in which no one is above the law, where everyone is accountable to the law and to the people, where both the letter and the spirit of our constitution are respected, where the system is more important than any single individual. Now, Doc, I know you and I, we've had people come up to me and say things like, please come and save Singapore. And I think we appreciate the sentiment, but that is the wrong sentiment. It's the wrong attitude because that's what the PAP wants. It wants people to think that there is a morally superior class of people who will come along and save us all, right? That the right to govern and save this country is inherent in a very small group of people because then the PAP can determine who that group of people is and everyone else, sit back, relax, just listen to us. And this leads to the third ideology, which is that rational problem solving should be favored over political competition and contestation. Uh, a sort of consensus or consultative ideology, to use the words that the PAP loves. Now, consensus ideologies of representation emphasize that problems can be better solved and thus governance more effective not through a process where we publicly debate, we put up platforms, we you know, exchange uh, ideas robustly in the public and have debates and have manifestos and have free and open elections, but a sort of deliberative process where stakeholders' interests and expertise are incorporated, fed up to the policymakers into a slow, deliberative public process, right? So that's why we have things like the feedback unit, reach, you know, all these conversations, and here's the crucial thing. In this system, political representatives don't need to be authorized by the people they claim to, to represent through you know, any particular process of political contestation. Rather, these unelected officials can claim that they represent the public interest because they have carried out a consultative process. This undermines democracy, right? It undermines the whole basis of the will of the people. And the government claims this is apolitical, but of course that's nonsense. Just because you don't hear different values and views in the process doesn't mean you are somehow superior and neutral. More often than not, it just means that you've excluded dissenting views. So th this technocratic elite are shielded from different political views and values, which means that their own political views are overrepresented. They dominate the process. And this elite has intensely elitist and functionalist notions of how public policy issues are defined and addressed. So when PM Lee says things like, we listen, we hear you, we will take your feedback into account. See, the emphasis there is, we solve the problem. You talk to us, tell us what's your problem, we will solve it, not you, right? You don't take part in politics, we do the politics, you tell us. So, normative choices in public policy, right? Public policy is all about making very difficult choices based on your values, based on what you believe, based on your assumptions. All of these things are downplayed. Instead, it becomes this very rationalist set of, this, uh, you know, system of decision-making. And at the opening of parliament, when PM Lee says he wants constructive politics, what he means is elitist, technocratic politics. Right? Actual political contestation, organizing people to make a change, organizing people around sets of issues, that is not constructive, that is destructive in their definition. 
But that's the fundamental uh, you know, um, uh, bedrock of politics, organizing people around issues. And that's not what they want. And even as Singaporeans have demanded more and more and more say into how our lives are run, the PAP has consistently sought to channel this um, increase in political mobilization through PAP-controlled institutions, through which they can manufacture political consensus. Right? What, what's the latest one with the ridiculous name? Singapore Together Emerging Stronger Conversation. I mean, <laughs> but you see, the, how many conversations have we had? What changes any of them made, right? So, okay, to recap, right? The PAP has articulated our national values to include three important ideologies. First, that we the people don't have rights. We only have privileges granted us to the, by, the, by the government. Second, that political accountability derives from moral virtue of political leaders, not the will of the people, not laws, regulations, constitutions. And that this virtue can be determined through state-sponsored meritocracy. And third, that rational problem-solving should be favoured over political competition and contestation. So this is where I come back to the beginning. Where does the PAP stand on these, a uh, PSP? You know, where do you stand in relation to these three very core ideologies, which the PAP has defined as Asian values, Singaporean values, how we do things in Singapore, you know, uniquely Singapore, right? Articulating your values on where you stand on these things means that you know where you stand. It means your voters know where you stand. It means your party members and prospective party members know where you stand. It means that your values become more important than any single party member. It helps to ensure continuity, sustainability. It helps to enforce party discipline and internal unity and prevent defections. It means that you're able to articulate consistent policy decisions because you know where your values are. And in turn, it means that voters know what you stand for, which means that in a time where voting is more than ever about affirming identity, they know what identity they're voting for. It means you have a platform which can inspire, which people can emotionally embrace, which they can then incorporate into their identity. I think until you articulate these values clearly, people aren't voting for you, they're just voting against the PAP. Now, I hear you asking, and I get this question a lot, what about the Workers' Party, right? The only other opposition party in government. People think they're successful because they focus on bread and butter issues and are just one step to the left of the PAP. But that to me is a symptom, not the explanation of their fundamental party values. Because what the Workers' Party have done is to actually accept the PAP's premise of these three ideologies in order to de-emphasize the difference between themselves and the PAP. If they accept the PAP's definition of national identity and these three ideologies, it means that the PAP finds it very difficult to attack the Workers' Party as anti-national, as traitors. The media, the press, right? The whole system set up becomes very difficult to attack the Workers' Party. And this has upsides and downsides. It means that uh, it, it's very, very hard for the Workers' Party to distinguish themselves from the PAP politically. Right? And so people can reasonably say, hey, why vote for the Workers' Party when I can vote for the real thing, the PAP? That's the argument Vivian Balakrishnan made in the debate. It means that the Workers' Party have to wait for the PAP to screw up before they can win. Right? And it means the Workers' Party actually could lose seats pretty easily, as we saw in Pongo East, 
because if people have no compelling reason to vote against the PAP, um, then they might not vote for the Workers' Party. It means they fight on the basis of competence and um, policies, which the PAP always has the advantage on because it has control of all this, the levers of power, it has all the money, it has a track record, powers of incumbency. But it also means that it's easier to win elections because the difference between the PAP and the Workers' Party is minimized. And people who are used to the PAP and scared of change have a very small step to take to vote for the Workers' Party. But consider that means that you know, it's not just enough to say these values, you have to perform them, right? You have to demonstrate you're authentic. And so the Workers' Party must also now behave like the PAP. And this severely restricts what they can do, the solutions they can present, and how they present it. For example, they just unexpectedly signal a rejection of individual human rights for Singaporeans. Right? Pritam's entirely unexpected and unnecessary announcement that the Workers' Party would not fight for the repeal of 377A. This is an acceptance of the PAP's position, but it makes it very, very hard for the Workers' Party to articulate arguments on the basis of human rights in the future without contradicting themselves and opening up themselves to accusations of hypocrisy. More broadly, they accept the government has the right to impose solutions and approach these on a technocratic basis. Look at how Jameis is talking about the minimum wage. It's technical, it's limited, right? It's about tweaking, making the policy correct. When he talks about rebalancing economic policies on behalf of labor, he doesn't talk about, hey, let's empower labor unions to fight for themselves, to fight for the workers. Workers know best, they should be the ones to fight, no. Right? He's not talking about rewriting the constitution to strengthen individual rights, to strengthen the political participation of workers. Instead, he's a very technocratic solution. So the premise there remains that government policymaking is the solution, not institutional reform. That people don't have inalienable social and human rights. And if you look at how they behave, they have to present their candidates on the same basis as the PAPs, as people of superior moral virtue. Take the Raisha Khan affair. They could have responded to it on a number of different ways by saying, hey, there's a genuine conversation about race, racial discrimination. Minorities are discriminated in society. We stand by what she said, right? They could have doubled down, challenged the PAP narrative, used it as an opportunity to talk about the institutions which govern race. Instead, they immediately neutralized criticism by behaving like the PAP, perform with moral virtue, apologize, admit mistakes, move on. But this means that we will remain a place where your ineffable morality is more important than legal contracts, the will of the people, democratic accountability, the constitution. So the Workers' Party sends a message that our values as a party and more broadly, our vision of Singapore's national identity are fundamentally the same as the PAP's. And this means it requires very little for a voter to shift because the shift in their personal identity is not fundamental, right? A voter can look at the two options and it's not a challenge to their vision of themselves to shift where they put that X. This means that it's easier to shift from the PAP to the Workers' Party, but here's the big problem. If you believe that these ideologies, if the PAP's ideologies, its vision of national identity are in the long term, part of the problem for Singapore, then the Workers' Party is no longer part of the solution. They're part of the problem. And 
you know, let's dismiss the idea that the Workers' Party are just pretending until they get into power. Politics doesn't work that way. If you don't actually do what you say you're going to do when you're campaigning, people are going to kick you out of power pretty quickly. Look at the PAP itself, right? Between 59 and 63, it departed from its platform and departed from its values. And the only thing that saved it was arresting the entire opposition and then doubling down by continuing to arrest opposition, politicians, activists, trade unions, all the way into the 80s, by which time the opposition you know, had been reduced uh, first to nothing and then to one, two people, right? And if you look at the PAP itself, it started out as a socialist party, and we have evidence that Lee Kuan Yew personally knew that a lot of the rhetoric he was saying was just for political convenience, that he, entirely didn't, he didn't entirely believe it, but he said it to win and keep power. But once he said it, his successors became trapped by his rhetoric. It is very, very hard for the PAP to break away today from what Lee Kuan Yew has said, even if they don't believe it. So, to conclude, what is the PSP's values? And don't forget, this is not just about articulating values. You have to live up to them. People want to see that you're real, you're authentic. This is the hardest part. If you believe in individual rights, you have to speak up for individual rights. If you believe in institutions, in democracy, your party must be governed in that way too. You can't say something like, we believe in democracy and accountability, and then have your party be ruled by a small cabal of elites with no genuine input from the grassroots. You can't say we believe in institutions and then let one man overrule the party, uh, you know, CEC, right? You can't say we believe in transparency and then not be transparent. You can't say we believe in the rights of the individual and then when time comes, not stand up for individual rights. So politics is not just rhetorical. It is practiced. It is performative. And, you know, to give credit to the PAP, they live up to their own values, right? They run their party like they run... Singapore, and they're authentic. You know where they stand. But if you want to deal with Singapore's problems, then you have to think about these ideologies. And I argue you have to challenge them and articulate a clear alternative. If being Singaporean is not following the PAP ideology, then what is and how and why? What does the Progress Singapore Party stand for? And can you live up to these values? This is the challenge that I lay before you. Thank you very much.